morning. So today is um, the last time that I'm going to preach in 2016. So I have a small present for you. It's potentially a shorter one and a half point sermon. I can't promise anything. <laughs> I can't promise anything. Uh, just as a reminder, uh, we are not available to be in the school here on Christmas Day or New Year's Day, so uh, we will be celebrating New Year, Christmas Eve rather with Hinson Baptist Church. That's at 5 o'clock at Hinson Baptist. There was a little bit of a discrepancy in the time uh, because at 6 o'clock it's a cookie potluck. So the service itself, though, is at 5, and the purpose of that was to move it back an hour, so it's hopefully early enough that uh, you could still have ho- get home and uh, have dinner at home if you'd like rather than having it before. And then on January 1st, uh, the first day of 2017, we'll be having a joint service with Selwood Baptist Church, and their service begins at 10.30 a.m., January 1st, 10.30 a.m., and we'll have more information in our newsletter and also um, on our Facebook page. So our tradition at the Gathering Church, as some of you and many of you may know, is to spend the Advent season reflecting on how the incarnation and the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed us in the last year. In fact, this is the tradition of many churches and Christians over the ages, is to spend this season slowing down and reflecting on all that God has done for us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the incarnation, it simply means that God became a man in the person of Jesus. Jesus was fully God and fully man, not some kind of partial mixture of each. He was fully God and fully man. And if this is true, that God himself broke into human history and was born of a woman and was made like us in every way, yet did not sin, if it's true that Jesus grew up and became the true and rightful king of Israel to sit on the throne of David, to be the promised true heir in the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. And if it's true that he's the Messiah, that he's the true prophet, the rightful king, the final priest, if it's true that he lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to God in our place and then died a sinner's death, suffering and taking the full wrath of God in our place, then this man, Jesus Christ, should have a radical, life-changing impact on our lives. If God became a man, then everything has changed. And so the question that we are asking uh, of the scriptures this month of December is, how has this man, Jesus of Nazareth, changed you in the last year? And that's what we're spending these three weeks discussing in this short series. We're calling this short series The Ministry of Jesus. And we're just looking at three distinct aspects of Jesus' ministry and asking how these distinct aspects have taken shape in our lives in the last year. Last week, we talked about our relationship to the poor, and we looked at Luke chapter 6, verse 20, which says, Blessed are the poor. And we looked at the scriptures and asked ourselves, has the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, changed the way that we relate to the poor around us in the last year? We looked at a statement that was given to us by Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century theologian, where he said, where do we have a command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in a more abrupt and urgent manner than the command to give to the poor? And we spent 
our time last week asking the question, how has the gospel made us to be a people that are more given to the care and the concern of the poor? And this morning, we are going to look at the grace of God. My last sermon of the year, I better preach on the grace of God. Last week, the poor, this week, the grace of God, and next week, December 18th, Uh, Our brother, Chris Taylor, will end the year by looking at the topic of forgiveness with us and asking us to think about how has the gospel of Jesus Christ made us to be a more forgiving people. So if you turn your Bibles to John chapter 6, we're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 35 to 51. John chapter 6, verses 35 to 51. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word given to us in this text. And Lord... We pray that your spirit would be among us as we hear from the scriptures, God, and we pray that we would be a people that are more enamored with the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be a people that are distinctly marked by the grace of God. We pray that your grace would be evident to us and would be impressed upon our hearts even as I preach the word in the next few minutes here. We pray for a supernatural work of your spirit to convict and to comfort. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So point one is the need for grace. The need for grace. Let me show you, just keep your finger in John chapter six, just to show you something at the beginning of the book of Romans that had a profound 
impact on me when I first saw this and had a profound impact on me again this week as I was meditating on this text. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 6, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is addressing his letter to the Romans to uh, a group of Christians. He's writing to Roman uh, Christians, uh, rather those that live in Rome that are Christians. And just a couple verses down in verse 15, he says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to Christians. That's remarkable, I think. Because we normally think about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, as something that is the gateway to become a Christian. It's the message whereby we are converted. And that's certainly true. But Paul has a longing in his heart as a minister, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, to go to Christians to preach the gospel to Christians. And the implications of that are, are profound and massive. They are, at least it means that the gospel is for Christians. It means that the gospel has massive implications and ramifications for all of our lives. Not just the doctrine or the message whereby we're converted, but the message whereby we sustain and endure and grow in joy and love and peace with God. And so this morning, I have that similar longing that the apostle does to preach the gospel to a church that is full of Christians. There's a quote that I've read to us before. And it's crucial, though, for our understanding of our need for the grace of God. I think the last time I read it to us was over the summer. But it's a quote by Archibald Alexander, and he was the first professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. And he's writing in 1844. And he says this. He says, it seems desirable to ascertain as precisely as we can why Christians are so commonly diminutive of stature and are of such feeble strength in their religion. That's how he starts. He says, I think we need to press in to think about why Christians seem so feeble in their strength. And he says, here's the answer. He says, there is a defect in our belief in the freeness of divine grace. There is a defect in our belief in the freeness of divine grace. He goes on, there is a spurious legal religion which may flourish without the practical belief in the absolute freeness of divine grace. But it possesses none of the characteristics of the true Christian's life. It is found to exist in the rankest growth, in systems of religion which are utterly false. But even when the true doctrine is acknowledged in theory, often it is not practically felt and acted on. The new convert lives upon his frames rather than on Christ. While the older Christian is still found struggling in his own strength and failing in his expectations of success, he becomes discouraged first and then sinks into gloomy despondency or becomes in a measure careless. Here I am persuaded is the root of the evil. And until religious teachers inculcate clearly, fully, practically the grace of God as manifest in the gospel, we will have no vigorous growth among professing Christians. What he means by legal religion is he means a way of viewing religion as when I uh, obey, then I have earned God's favor towards me. 
Or, to put it another way, when I live my life a certain way, in a religious way, which means if I put A in, then I will get B out. When I live such a way, and then calamity or disaster strikes in my life, and the, the rock as it is is shaken in my life, my faith itself is shaken. Because it seems to me that because I've obeyed God a certain way, he owes me. And there's a way that's thinking that's very uh, legalistic or religious in nature. And Archibald Alexander is telling us, he says, that until Christian preachers clearly, fully, and practically preach the grace of God as manifest in the gospel, we will have no vigorous growth among professing Christians. Because there is a sense, my friends, in which we can have and you can have familiarized yourself with the Bible for many weeks, or many years even, or even many decades, but you don't truly know what it's about. There is a way in which you can know a lot of the Bible's content and not understand its meaning or its purpose. There's a place where Paul charges Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 5, he says, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship that is from God, that is by faith. He's saying, tell certain people to stop worrying about, there's a way that you can be looking at the scriptures and can have an uh, encyclopedic type knowledge about its content and really have no idea what the book is actually about. Really have no idea what the scriptures are actually teaching to us. Because the whole point of the Bible is to reveal to us God's plan to glorify himself by redeeming a people through Jesus Christ. That's the point of the entire Bible. And there's a way, though, that we can constantly go to the scriptures to defend certain doctrines or prove certain doctrines or build our lives on certain kinds of doctrines and absolutely miss the point of the entire Bible. And Paul says, charge certain people to not even worry about that kind of stuff. Stop worrying about that kind of stuff. Because the entire point of the Bible is God showing his glory and glorifying himself by redeeming sinners. The greatness and the majesty of God is being revealed to us in the saving work of this man, Jesus Christ. When did it happen for you, my friends, when that became real to you? When it became real to you that the point of the scriptures is God's redeeming love towards you in Jesus Christ? When was it laid upon your heart that the purpose of the scriptures was to reveal the grace of God to you in Jesus Christ? Listen to Paul as he opens the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. This is a profound verse. He says, Of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world, this gospel is bearing fruit and it is increasing, as also it is among you. Ready? Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul says that there is a way in which one understands the grace of God in truth. It's almost like it's a time when the penny finally drops. It's the time when your heart truly hears it and understands the grace of God given to you in the gospel. Paul described his life for us in Acts 20, 24. He says that his life is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The entire Bible is to give to us 
the grace of God found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. God's redeeming love for his people. And we all are in so desperate need of it to see free divine grace given to us because of the costly life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the most important thing that we can spend our time dwelling on, pondering on, thinking on. That's why we're in this text this morning. Look at verse 44, John 6, 44. It says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come unless God first comes to you. It means that every single one of us is in massive need of divine grace. The only way that you can come to God is if he first comes to you and draws you. The reason for that, my friends, comes down to the nature of our own wills. Listen to Romans chapter 8 verse 7. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. As we are in our natural sinful state, we don't desire God. We don't long for him. We don't want him. We are all in desperate need of his grace to come to us first. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. None of us. In our natural state, we don't seek for God. We run away from him. We have rebelled so deeply from him. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Don't you see, my friends, the problem is with our wills. We don't want it in our natural sinful state. So we absolutely, positively, without a doubt, need divine grace to come to us. We need God's longing presence to come to us first or we will never come to him. From the beginning and through all of our Christian life, we need him to come to us in divine grace. Look, he doesn't say, this text does not say, repent and then you can come to me. He says, I'm coming to you. And he says, and I am drawing you in an irresistible, undeniable kind of way. The word draw here in the original could be better translated drag. I'm dragging you to myself. I'm pulling you to myself. I'm yanking you to myself even. It's like a tractor beam. Okay, there's a movie coming out next week that has some tractor beams that suck and pull. Okay, what am I talking about? It's like a stubborn, rusty nail, and God's grace is like a giant magnet that draws you, that drags you to himself. He does not say, he does not say, repent, and then you can come to me. He says, I am coming to you first. You need me to come to you. You need my divine love and grace to come to you first. No one can come to the Father unless I drag him and draw him. You know the story of Luke, uh, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is the story of uh, two sons, really. You could really call it the parable of two sons. We call it the prodigal son, but it's really a story about two different sons. 
one son who sought to make a name for himself by rebelling and running from, uh, from, from his father and, and making a name for himself in the world through licentious living and so on. And then there's the older brother who stayed and who tried to make a name for himself by obeying all the rules, by never leaving his father's side. But both of them, they didn't do it out of love for their father. They did it out of love for themselves. The older brother is just as lost as the younger brother is because he's trying to make a name for himself by religion, as it were, by being moral, by doing the right thing, as it were. And we know because at the end of the story, when grace is finally showered on his younger brother, the older brother is in rage. He's angry at an act of divine grace, at an act of grace, rather, by his father. But the story of the younger son who says, give me my part of the inheritance now because I want to I go, I want to leave. I want to go live my life the way I want to live my life. And the father lets him go. And this younger son, as you know, he, he, he wastes his life. He, 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 he squanders his inheritance as it were and he finds himself at the bottom of the barrel. And he says to himself, okay, maybe if I go back to my father and I grovel and I come back and I, and I, and I, and I apologize, maybe he'll give me a, a low station in his, in his household. Maybe I can get a job cleaning pigsties or something. And so the son is on his way back to the father. And the text says, in Luke chapter 15, it says, when the son was far off, the father looks and sees, and he runs to his son. Now, the reason I bring this story up because I read a commentary this week, and I never, someone has never suggested this to me, but it says that some think that the son could have been, uh, that the father could have been coming from behind the son. So in a sense, there was, this commentator was suggesting that the son could have had the impression that he was being mugged by his father. <laughs> but he was being mugged by his father's love and grace, When you think of being drawn and dragged, do you think of God coming to you in utter and sheer love and grace and even pressing into you in a mugging sort of way? And his son doesn't even have the chance to really apologize for the father says, my son was dead and now my son is alive. Utter, sheer, divine love and grace. We love him because he first loved us. We seek him because he first sought us with his perfect love and grace. Maybe we've come here this morning with hard hearts. Maybe we've come here this morning and this is the first time that we've heard this, but don't you see that if John 6, 44 is true, that if you have a sense of him on your heart now, it's a miracle. If you have a sense of him on your heart right now, as I preach, as you hear these words, it means that he has come to you in divine love and grace. And he's calling you to yield to the sweet pressure of of his presence. Because if you have anything in you that is seeking him, that longs for him, that wants him, it's because he gave it to you. 
He's given you a new heart and a new affections that are for him. Even the faith that you have to reach out to him in trust is a gift to you. Because no one seeks God, the scriptures tell us. No, not one. Every one of us has turned our own way, has turned aside from him. And the second half of Isaiah 53, 6 is such a word of grace to us, isn't it? And the iniquity of us all has been laid upon him. The iniquity of our hard-heartedness to not turn to him. The iniquity of us spurning the God of the universe who made us and created us. What grace there is in that verse. That iniquity was not laid on us. The, the, the punishment for the sin of turning from the righteous maker and sustainer of the universe was not laid on you, my friends. It was laid on him. It was laid on him in an act of the most costly act of love and redeeming grace that one could ever possibly fathom or imagine. The point of the scriptures is that God is revealing his glory, he's displaying his glory in redeeming a people for himself through Jesus Christ. It's all of grace, my friends. Reminds me of the hymn, "'Tis not I that chose thee for the Lord that could not be. This heart would still refuse me had thou not chosen me. Thou from the sin that stained me hast cleansed me and set me free. Of old thou hast ordained me that I should live to thee. T'was sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind the world had else enthralled me to heaven glories blind. My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. Some of you, my friends, are being mugged by the love of God. Yield to his, his, yield to his love and his presence even now. One other comment before we go to my second half point. Remember the context here of where we're at. The context here of John chapter 6 is coming right on the end of the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 had happened the day before. And crowds were, 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 were smothering Jesus, as it were, so bad that they had to, he put his disciples in a boat to go to the other side. And when they get to the other side the next morning, uh, the crowds show back up again. And Jesus admonishes the crowd. He said, you don't seek me. He said, you had your fill of bread, but you don't really seek me. He says, I am the bread of life. Now the point is this. What Jesus is suggesting is that these people were coming to Jesus as Jesus the miracle worker, not coming to Jesus as the bread of life. They were coming to Jesus so that Jesus could change their circumstances They were coming to Jesus because they were hungry again. They needed some physical food. They were hungry last night. He fed them. They were cool with him leaving. But as soon as they need another physical need met, a circumstance changed, they seek him. And he says, you don't seek me. You don't seek me as the true one who can fill and meet all of your inner needs and your deepest longings and desires. Because my friends, what Jesus is telling us is he's telling something that's utterly profound about the human heart. 
He's saying, tomorrow, I can meet your physical needs. I could change your circumstances, but tomorrow, when something else comes your way, what are you going to ask for? For me to change your circumstances again? Because is your happiness, is your peace, is your joy, is your satisfaction, is your comfort fulfilled and found in certain circumstances in life? And Jesus says, if you come to me to just be a circumstance changer, he says, you don't really seek me. You don't really seek me. And then he says, because I am the bread of life. He says, I am the one that can truly fulfill all your longings and desires. Don't come to me to be Jesus, the miracle worker, circumstance changer. He says, come to me as Jesus, the bread of life. The one that can fill the longest desires of your heart. Those things that seem unsatiable, come to me and I can satisfy you. He who comes to me will have rivers of life that flow up in them so that they will never go hungry or thirsty again. The deepest longings of your heart can be satisfied in Jesus Christ alone. Don't seek him. Don't seek him to just be a circumstance changer. Seek him to be your true bread. Seek him to be the thing that can truly satisfy you. Seek him to be the one that comes to you in divine grace to give you life. He didn't just come to give you better circumstances. He came to give you a better life, a life that was full, a life that had longings and desires satisfied and fulfilled and not in the things of this world. You know, I was meditating this week and just thinking about different failures and and shortcomings and mistakes and disappointments in my own life, mistakes that I've made, failures that I've made. I've said this to you before, but um, what, I oftentimes hear people talk about being wrongly accused of things and the suffering that takes place of being wrongly accused and enduring that. And my problem is that I've pretty much done everything I've ever been accused of. So I don't really have this sense of being able to commiserate with people that are wrongly accused. Because I actually do those things. And I was just meditating this week on my own failings, shortcomings, mistakes that I've made in leadership of this church, mistakes I've made with my family, mistakes I've made with friends. And I thought about 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10, which says that Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He had a weakness, and his weakness is what drew him to God. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. There was a weakness in his own life that made it so that he could not simply depend on his own strength. He could not depend on his own giftings, his personalities, whatever it was. We don't know what it was. And I think it's a gift to us that it doesn't tell us what the thorn in Paul's flesh was. But it was given to him to keep him humble. Maybe it was a speech impediment because he says in 1 Corinthians that he's not a very eloquent speaker. Well, we know he's got a a fantastic mind for the way he writes. Maybe he couldn't speak a certain way. But God gave him a certain weakness so that he could find his life and his identity and his strength in the sufficiency of God and God alone. And I was thinking about how there's these little shipwrecks in our life that their purpose is to keep us from the ultimate shipwrecks of losing our ministries or our families or our marriages. 
And that small failures with people and decisions or whatever they are, their purpose, these small shipwrecks in life, are meant to drive us into the love of God. And to embrace our weakness and to truly find the strength in the love of God in the gospel. Because I don't think there's anything else in life quite like our small shipwrecks, our own failings that have the purpose of driving us into the love of God has a purpose of showing us our own weakness, showing us that we haven't arrived yet and keeping us humble and drive us back to God and say, God, I'm a wicked man. I'm a sinful man. I sin against my friends. I sin against my family. I'm not the leader I should be. And in that, Paul found that my grace is sufficient for him. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. And I've come to learn, and I think I'm learning in this season, that it's the little shipwrecks, when embraced rightly, keep us from the ultimate shipwrecks. Keep us from losing the faith. Keep us from losing our family. Keep us from being disqualified, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Lest he preach the gospel and become disqualified in the end. It reminds me of a story that uh, Tim Keller tells in his Genesis 32 sermon. In his Genesis 32 sermon is about, is about Jacob. And the story tells is an illustration from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a minister in London in the 50s and 60s. And Lloyd-Jones tells about this conversation that he had, and he was in a gathering of older ministers. And they were discussing this younger minister who had these remarkable preaching gifts. And this young man, uh, he was acclaimed, and there was this hope that this young man would actually help bring revival to the area. And then one of the older ministers said to the others, he said, well, that's all well and good, but you know, uh, I don't think he's been humbled yet. And the other ministers sort of looked very grave, and, and they sort of said, well, that's, that's too bad, that's unfortunate. And Keller says, he says, unless something comes into your life that breaks you of your self-righteousness and pride, you may never say that you believe the gospel of grace. You may say that you believe the gospel of grace, but the penny hasn't actually dropped. So my friends, my point is simply, when the small shipwrecks in life come, see them as an act of divine grace to you so that you can be drawn back to God and find that his grace is sufficient for you. That when you are weak, then you are strong. And my second half point is the longevity of grace. Look at verse 37 and 39. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39 says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That means, my friends, what this doctrine or this principle is teaching us is that a real Christian will last. It means that if grace came to you in the first and you were never able to earn it, then, my friends, grace will sustain you and keep you all the way through the Christian life and you don't have to find a way to be worthy to keep it. Because if we were running far from God in the other direction 
And his grace came to us like the hound from heaven and radically saved us and put us on a path where we're now his disciples, we're following him to the ends of the earth, then that grace is sufficient and won't run out to the end. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is a hope for us, my friends. It's a hope that the good news of the gospel, the grace that's found in the love of God, is a grace that, is, uh, that, is, um, that can't run out. It's a grace that's, that is a fountain that never runs dry. You know, there's a place later in John's gospel, John chapter 10, he, chapter 10 verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. You know, other preachers have noted that when the Bible calls us sheep, it's kind of like the ultimate insult. You know, the Bible doesn't call us like, you know, like cats, okay? Because I love cats. And they're really smart. But sheep aren't smart. And preachers have noted over the years that when the Bible says that we're sheep, it's not, it's not like a, it's, it's almost like a pat on the head on some level. Because sheep need help. Sheep need shepherding. Sheep need care. Sheep need someone to watch over them. And that's a word of grace to us from God. Saying, my grace is sufficient for you saying, it's my grace that's going to keep you. The trials and the struggles and the things of life and the storms of life will come at you, but I am the good shepherd. I am the one that will keep you. I am the one that will keep you from being snatched out of my hand and my father's hand because you're just a sheep, but I'm a shepherd. And my love and my grace is sufficient for you. I will in no way cast out. Well, my friends, let me close with this. Maybe you've come to the end of this sermon and you've realized that the grace of God um, really hasn't changed you all much, that much in the last year. Maybe as we're in this time of reflection and we're meditating on the, the freeness of divine grace and the love of God towards us in Jesus Christ and how that should radically free our hearts and change us and transform us, you're sort of sitting there a bit despondent. Maybe... Maybe the gospel hasn't affected me all that much. Maybe I have laid more hold of religion. Maybe I have laid more hold of my performance as the means towards my acceptance. Let me just remind you one more time, my friends. If that is on your heart, rejoice because there's a miracle happening in your heart right now. Because if there's any sense in which you that longs for him or desires for him, it's because he simply gave it to you. The only thing that he requires of us is that we feel our need for him. That that he is faithfully and gently longing for us, wooing us, and bringing us back. And if that's been the last year of your life, my friends, feel that divine grace right now. That forgives you, that welcomes you back into the loving presence of the Father. Repent of that. Repent simply means to say, I'm going to turn from living this way of not embracing the freeness of grace and I'm going to turn in faith and trust to God. I'm going to turn in faith and trust to his grace that he freely offers me and I'm going to embrace that. 
I'm going to brace that with whatever I have, whether it's a mustard seed of faith or something much larger, but whatever it is, if it's simply a mustard seed of faith to lay hold of it, then lay hold of it because it's enough. A mustard seed of faith will always be enough. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for the grace of God found in the gospel. And Lord, we pray, we pray that it would affect our, our lives in the next year. Lord, we pray that we would turn to you now in faith and trust and we would see the great love that you have for us in Jesus Christ, God. May we be a church and a people that are marked by this kind of love and grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.